Hello, and welcome to the Bizarre and Fascinating Details podcast. I'm your host, Sarah, coming in solo again today. I've got some interesting cases to talk about. First and foremost, one that I thought was really interesting that had to do with webcams and turning on cameras at work, and it's staffers fired for refusing to keep his webcam on wins $73,000 payout. Requiring remote staff to keep their webcams on constitutes a human rights violation, according to courts in the Netherlands, who recently found for this plaintiff in a ruling against a U.S. software company. This Florida-based company called G2 must now pay about $72,000 to a formerly remote staff member based in the Netherlands after they fired him for refusing to keep his webcam on for eight hours a day. It does sound a little bit invasive, right? The Dutch employee said he was uncomfortable and felt as though it was an invasion of his privacy for the company to monitor him at all times via his webcam during virtual training. The monitoring also required the employee to share his laptop screen. The company promptly fired him, citing insubordination and refusal to work as the reason. In response, he took this company to court in his home country for the unfair dismissal. Ruling in the Dutch employee's favor, the court demanded that Chitu now pay his back wages and unused vacation days on top of the fine that they were also issued. And the employee's court bills, among other costs, were also to be paid by Chitu. Tracking via camera for eight hours per day is disproportionate and not permitted in the Netherlands, the court found in its verdict. The court went even further and quoted from the European Convention for the Protection of Human Rights and Fundamental Freedoms, citing that video surveillance of an employee in the workplace, be it covert or not, must be considered a considerable intrusion into the employee's private life. Following the rise in working from home during and after the pandemic, companies have increasingly found ways to monitor workers. While webcam streaming is less common, software programs are designed to check laptop data and have become very popular. In 2021, a survey by Digital.com of about 1,200 U.S. employers found that 60% of remote employees were using work monitoring software. Almost 9 out of 10 of these companies say they had fired employees following the use of the software. Currently, employee monitoring by companies in the U.S. is legal, but um, this should be interesting to see where it goes now that courts have ruled in the favor of this man. It doesn't necessarily mean that that is the trend that's going to continue into the U.S., but it is certainly an interesting point of view of the Netherlands courts in making that ruling. So the next article that I have is kind of a follow-up on episode 164, which was published February 20th about Anna Sorokin slash Anna Delvey, and it's just a little bit of an update on her case. And Anna Betts wrote this article, and it's titled, Fake Heiress Anna Delvey Sorokin Has Been Released From Jail, But Has Been Banned From Using Social Media Until Her Case Is Fully Over. Anna Sorokin, the 31-year-old scammer who pretended to be a German heiress named Anna Delvey and inspired the Netflix show Inventing Anna, was released from ICE detention last week. Sorokin had been held in the Orange County Jail in upstate New York for more than 17 months after being detained for overstaying her visa last year, her attorney said. She does not get a free pass, according to her attorney. She will remain under the supervision of ICE and her deportation proceedings will continue. Sorokin, who is still facing possible deportation back to Germany, 
will now be residing in New York City under 24-hour home confinement while the deportation case continues, per the court ruling obtained by the Daily Beast, who is the website that this article is posted on. On top of that, Sorokin must not use social media and was required to pay about $10,000 in a bond. Anna now has her opportunity to demonstrate her commitment to growing and giving back and being a positive impact on those she meets, said a spokesperson. She has had hurdles before her, and she will navigate them with strength and determination using her experience and lessons learned. Born in Russia, Sorokin moved to Germany at 16 and later dropped out of college. After interning with a fashion magazine in Paris, Sorokin made her way to New York in 2013 and over the next few years managed to swindle about $275,000 from hotels, restaurants, banks, and other people by pretending to be a German heiress with a hefty $60 million trust fund. Living in some of New York's most expensive hotels for months at a time, Sorokin racked up huge bills for rooms and restaurants. She would promise payment via wire transfers that would never end up arriving. And on top of that, she used fraudulent bank documents and an attempt to get about $22 million in loans from City National Bank and Fortress Investment Group. She wanted to open a social club similar to Soho Houses, named the Anna Delvey Foundation, she secured about $100,000 in loans by convincing a city national bank representative to let her overdraft her account. The scam came to light in the summer of 2018 when stories of her scheme were published in Vanity Fair and New York Magazine. In the Vanity Fair story, her former friend Rachel Williams, a former photo editor of the magazine, wrote about her experience with Sorkin. Williams detailed that she and Sorokin met at a Manhattan nightclub and how Sorokin would frequently take her out for glamorous dinners, drinks at hotel bars, and visits to a personal trainer, as well as trips to the sauna, and Sorokin always paid the bill. The two then went on a holiday in Morocco where they stayed in a luxury resort for about $7,000 a night. They racked up a $62,000 bill. Williams had assumed that Sorokin would cover the cost of the rooms, but her card got declined. Sorokin then convinced Williams to put her on her card, saying that she'd pay her back. Months later, the money neighbor came, so Williams went to the police. In 2019, Sorokin was convicted of eight charges, including attempted grand larceny for attempting to obtain $22 million in bank loans. During her trial, Sorokin's courthouse looks became a hot topic as she chose to be dressed by celebrity stylist Anastasia Walker. The Instagram page at Anna Delvey Court Looks documented and posted her outfits for each day of the trial. Interesting, right? Sorokin was eventually sentenced to four to 12 years behind bars. She ended up serving about four years in New York State Prison and was released in 2021 on parole for good behavior. But six weeks later, she was arrested by immigration authorities for overstaying her visa. Netflix released Inventing Anna. The salacious show was produced by Shonda Rhimes and was based on the 2018 viral New York Magazine article about Sorokin's scam. Sorokin was paid about $320,000 for the rights to her story, and she used the money to pay back several people she still owed money, as well as legal fees. Sorokin became even bigger as a celebrity after the show's release, and her Instagram following grew to over 600000 from about 150000 before the show aired. She currently has about a million followers, but she can't engage with them for the time being. While still in custody, Sorokin was interviewed by Cosmopolitan about her thoughts on the show's betrayal of her, and she said, I don't think I ordered people around so much. 
Sorokin did a viral podcast with Call Her Daddy's Alex Cooper in 2022, during which she spilled her thoughts on everything from the Netflix show to her case. I don't know. I wasn't doing anything super crazy. I feel like there were just people who were spending way more money than I did, she told the podcast. She then went on to reveal that while at Rikers Island, the correctional facility where she was spending two years before her jury conviction, she paid someone to do her laundry to avoid having to hand wash it herself. In response to being asked if she considered herself a con artist, Sorokin responded, absolutely not. Later in the podcast, she admitted she had lied about her family's background. She said, I guess I did. I mean, I cannot recall the exact instance, but I'm sure I did. In May, Sorokin, who still remained in custody, virtually hosted an art show in the Public Hotel in New York. The exhibition was titled Allegedly and featured artwork she had made while detained. Later in the summer, in an interview with NBC News, Sorokin admitted that she did something that was unethical, adding that she would not encourage anyone else to follow in in her footsteps. Most recently, Rachel Williams, Sorokin's former friend who wrote the Vanity Fair op-ed, filed a lawsuit against Netflix in August claiming that the show had defamed her by portraying her as a greedy, snobbish, and disloyal person. The lawsuit seeks damages from Netflix. And we will keep you guys posted as that case continues to unfold. In the meantime, we are going to get into the main case for the day, and I'm going to talk about somebody who's a little bit less known than Anna Delvey, but I'm going to talk about Stephen Kelsey. This case happened in rural Michigan in 2009. So let's talk about a few important things that happened in 2009. There were quite a few earthquakes and plane crashes that year. In particular, there was a 6.1 earthquake in Costa Rica that killed as many as 15 and injured 32. U.S. Airway Flight 1549 made an emergency landing on the Hudson River shortly after takeoff that year when taking off from LaGuardia Airport, all of the passengers and crews survived. The Rod Blagjanovic corruption charges happened in Illinois against the governor. He was removed from office. That was quite scandalous. The Colgan Air Flight 3407 crashed in New York while approaching the Buffalo-Niagara Airport. Everyone on board was killed and one person on the ground as well. Disgraced financier Bernard Madoff pleaded guilty to scamming investors of $18 billion. This was the largest scam in Wall Street history. This was the year that Croatia and Albania joined NATO. In 2009, North Korea launched controversial rockets, prompting the United Nations to meet and express concerns. They also conducted nuclear tests in 2009, which created even more tensions. Former Peruvian President Alberto Fujimora got 25 years for ordering killings and kidnappings. Chrysler filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy that year. General Motors, who followed in the fourth largest bankruptcy proceeding in U.S. history. Same-sex marriage was legalized in Sweden that year. Sri Lanka ended 26 years of civil war. The Air France Flight 447 crashes into the Atlantic Ocean, killing all 228 passengers and crew. At least 31 people were killed in Peruvian civil disobedience. Two American journalists were sentenced to 12 years of penal labor after allegedly entering North Korea illegally. 
The disputed Iranian presidential election led to worldwide protests. War erupted in northwest Pakistan that year, and Greenland assumed self-governance and self-rule. The largest hoard ever discovered of Anglo-Saxon gold was discovered in England with more than 1,500 items. This was called the Staffordshire Hoard. After a 72-year run, the soap opera Guiding Light ended that year. Typhoon Ketsana hit the Philippines, China, Vietnam, Cambodia, Laos, and Thailand, killing over 700 people. The Samoan Islands got hit as well with an 8.1 magnitude earthquake and a huge tsunami after. The Sumatra earthquake killed about 1,115 people. The infamous attack happened at Fort Hood that year in Texas with Army Major Nadal Hassan killing 13 and wounding 32. This was the deadliest mass shooting at a military installment in the U.S. At the end of December, there was both a blue moon and a lunar eclipse that happened on December 31st. This year in social history, the infamous Kanye West and Taylor Swift VMA dispute occurred. Avatar was released. James Cameron's very amazing and well-received movie, as well as Disney's Up!, the Yankees won their 27th World Series. The raunchy comedy The Hangover was also released that year. This was the year that Michael Jackson died, as well as Les Paul, Farrah Fawcett, and Walter Cronkite, to name a few more, um, more influential celebrities. Top-selling movies like Harry Potter and Ice Age were released, as well as Inglorious Bastards. Barack Obama became president that year, which was a pretty influential period of time. He was the first black president in the U.S. The Victorian-based bushfires were declared the worst disaster in Australian history that year. And the worst economic crisis since the Great Depression was going on during 2009. In music, it was Florida, Keisha, Black Eyed Peas, Beyonce's Single Ladies Put a Ring on It came out that year. The Modern Family was on television, as well as Glee. And those were just a few of the things that were going on in 2009. Now we're going to head back to rural Michigan, where 19-year-old Stephen Kelsey is home for the holidays during basic training with the U.S. Army. And his family has a home in the Highland Township. Stephen was known to be sweet and smart and very quiet. His younger sister was two years younger than him, and her name was Jessica. And she was bright and pretty and funny. She was his only sibling. And the family was somewhat religious, but average in pretty much every way. On this particular day, Stephen Kelsey is picked up about 16 miles from home. He had evidently marched through the woods, stopping at a store to get warm after walking for hours in the cold Michigan winter. He is picked up at Tyrone Township, a party store, when the owner notices that he is acting strangely. And this was about 6 p.m. January 1st, 2010. Stephen had been attempting to get rides from other customers in the store. He seemed withdrawn and looked like he'd been beaten up when police arrested him. But what had he done to elicit this immediate response and arrest? There was an absolutely horrific series of events that happened ensuring he would be placed on suicide watch. 
as well as receiving dozens and dozens of death threats. Stephen had come home from basic training in 2009. He arrived a week before Christmas on December 18th. His family loved the holidays and it was nice to have their son back home again. Stephen is small statured. He only stands about 5'7", and he's pretty soft-spoken. And he had spent the majority of his leave relaxing at home because he didn't really have a lot of friends. Highland Township, his home neighborhood, is about 34 square miles with not much to do. Stephen spent most of his free time fishing or at the local public library. He liked video games, and he had dropped out of high school to join the army. Evidently, his basic training was due to be done by February 6, 2010. In the meantime, he enjoyed fantasy novels and Japanese manga comic books. He had joined the Army October 8, 2009. His basic training did not take the usual amount of time because he had to have a special program to get his GED first. Prior to the police picking Stephen up at the party store... They had found his belongings in several dumpsters nearby, and this was of concern, so they went to his house to check on him, and his mother answered the door and said that she wasn't really sure where he was, and they kind of let that go. Evidently, on New Year's Eve, Stephen had been drinking Captain Morgan and Coke and Captain and Cranberry with a few shots of Bailey's Irish cream in between. His parents were okay with him drinking as long as he stayed in their home. And at that point, his parents had gone to bed, leaving the two siblings on the couch together. That was 19-year-old Stephen and 17-year-old Jessica. Stephen reads his comics and Jessica is watching a movie until she falls asleep. At that point, Stephen begins teasing her, as many siblings often do, and starts throwing his socks at her. Then he tossed a pillow at her. This was around 2 a.m., and Jessica wasn't too pleased that he was messing with her, and she was basically telling him to stop, according to his testimony. Around 2 a.m., Stephen gets up and goes to the kitchen and randomly grabs a 10-inch knife. He uses the knife to stab his sister in the neck while she's slept. She immediately wakes up, and he covers her mouth with his hand. He then attempts to subdue her while she struggles because she's obviously bleeding and fighting for her life. And he wants to put her out of her misery because he claims she was dying. And he says he wanted to end this by stabbing her in the brain. So he stabs her in the eye. She is bleeding out of her neck. She is scared. She is in pain. And she is basically struggling for her life as the knife that he had stabbed her in the eye with had broken off in her eye socket. She had also had her throat slashed, and the blood in her eye wound was causing it to pool in her sinus cavity. It did not stab her brain and end her life the way her brother thought it would, but it made her eye bulge horrifically. Stephen claimed, when questioned later, that he wasn't sure why he'd done any of this, at some point, he also picked her up, stripped her clothing off, and sexually assaulted her as she lay dying. Stephen at some point deposited her in her own bedroom and shut the door, 
but not before he'd also stabbed her three or four times on her backside, claiming that he was just trying to see if she was still alive. Around 3 p.m., when her son is still gone from the house and no one knows where he is, Jennifer, Stephen's mother, goes to check on Jessica. After she's not up, she finds her new daughter dead in her own bedroom. After killing his sister, Stephen had taken his backpack filled with a few personal items and first gone to a Wendy's where he'd thrown everything in a dumpster along with some personal items, some food, and a butcher's block of knives. One of the knives was missing. I'm not really sure what he did with that one, but everything that he threw in the dumpster had blood on it. He then pulls about $300 from an ATM, buys some refreshments, and then goes to a Target for clothing. He then gets a hotel room and showers and changes clothing into the stuff that he purchased at Target. Police immediately start looking into this as, as soon as Jennifer reports what happened to her daughter. And that's about the time that they pick Stephen up at the party store. But what would make a young man snap and do something so absolutely horrific? As it turns out, there might indeed be motivation for what he had done to his young sister. Stephen had actually had sex with her before, when he was 13 and she was 11. Evidently, he claimed that they had experimented several times, completing the act twice. Their father caught them the second time and got therapy for his son, but it was short-lived. Stephen also had issues with alcohol use and had been ordered into therapy for that as well. Counseling was only a few weeks and clearly did not fix the issues that this young man was suffering from. His parents claimed that the two did not have any unusual issues, that they reportedly got along really well when they were older. Police did not believe Stephen when he was questioned because he claimed there was no reason behind the attack to his sister. But police believe that given the history between these two, that Stephen had stabbed his sister after she refused to have sex with him again, that she had somehow rejected him and this infuriated him. And that is why he grabbed the knife and stabbed his sister in the neck. Stephen was charged with first-degree premeditated murder and first-degree felony murder for the killing of his own little sister. A year later, Stephen was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. He is currently in prison now. It's my understanding that he has been segregated from the general population because of his threats to commit suicide and the death threat that he is constantly receiving but it is a terrifying case and one that drew my interest when I heard it on a different podcast, but just an absolutely, absolutely horrific thing. And I don't think anybody could have possibly anticipated that this young man would snap in this way and do such a horrific thing to his own sister. So the parents in one fell swoop lost both of their children. Both of them had had a promising future both appeared to be somewhat normal from the outside. Both had promising futures, and both of them lost those futures on the same day. Very, very sad case indeed. That is about it for the day. 
we would ask that you please rate, review, and subscribe to our little podcast that is so valuable for us and it provides us with the feedback we need to get you guys more content and to raise us up in the rankings as one of the shows that might provide certain topics or content that people are looking for. We will put all the articles used in today's episode onto our show notes. So if you have any questions and want to go check those out, you can. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions about the episode that we have presented today, please shoot us an email. We are at the podcast at gmail.com. We also post pictures from the episodes on our Instagram. It is at the podcast. And please join us again next week when we talk more about weird, wacky, and wild cases. Good night, podcast peeps. Stay safe, keep it real, and always live your very best life. Bye.